Hello, and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. We are still in the weird doldrumy part of the Iliad, where not a whole heck of a lot is happening, and we are still waiting for Achilles and Patroclus to get back in the fight. Um, this section is not terribly eventful, so I'm calling an audible, and rather than doing two lectures to cover the entire section from Iliad 10 to 14. Uh, we're going to do the whole thing in one. Uh, there are reasons for this for class purposes as well. It is my intention that instead of um, meeting on our usually scheduled class day to talk about like just half of this section as we usually do, um, instead I'm going to use that time to talk about the research paper and the business of research altogether. Uh, which I usually save for later in the semester, but this class is weird because we have the new grading system and because um, I'm intending to have like two potential research papers instead of my usual one. Um, plus, hopefully this will help in your other classes. Um, typically when I do my lecture on research methods and paper writing technique, um, my students find it really helpful and I consistently find that it makes for better papers in my class. So. I like to spend an entire day on that, and I think it's really important. Um, and since we're in the boring part of the Iliad anyway, this seems like a natural opportunity for us to sort of blow off talking about all of this stuff in real depth, um, and instead focus on other stuff. Uh, I'm probably not going to record a unique lecture online for that, because I tend to fly pretty fast and loose when it comes to that stuff. Plus, I've recorded similar lectures for other classes. Um, so I will probably have those posted on the Canvas page for you to access. Feel free to check those out if, in fact, you miss class for some reason, or can't make it, or are just curious and want to hear it over again. Uh, but suffice it to say, we're going to do 10 to 14 at one stretch. Um, we're going to hopefully cram all that into our usual hour and 15 minutes-ish, um, because there's not a whole heck of a lot going on that changes the plot or changes our understanding of the themes or anything. Um, so with that in mind, we're going to break this down chronologically. Like, I'm just going to walk through each of the chapters individually, sort of touch on some highlights or things that I thought were interesting. Um, but this is basically our clip show for today. We're just going to blow right through this and get our all the way through uh, Iliad 14. Um, so next time we can start talking about when things really start picking up again, because Achilles and Patroclus are about to jump back into this fight, and things are going to get dramatic and heavy-handed. Um, so we'll have a lot to talk about there. So first off, remember that we are in a rough situation here. Um, in Iliad 8 and 9, Hector was charging forward, and every time the Greeks tried to retaliate, Zeus would just, like, chuck lightning bolts at them and very strongly dissuade them from interacting. Um, so at this point, Hector is encamped around the ships. This is a desperate situation for the Greeks. They are screwed here. Um, if Hector burns the ships, it's curtains. Like, they will have nowhere to go. They can't get resources or support. Um, at this point, half the, the army is feeling especially mutinous. Um, so here in Iliad 10, Hector is camped around the ships, and all that's standing between Hector and burning those ships is this wall. Um, now, we haven't talked about the wall in the past. It was erected considerably earlier. I want to say that was a book seven thing, though I could be mistaken about that. Um, but it's important to note, and Homer reminds us here at the very beginning of um, Iliad 11, actually, 
um, that the wall was constructed without proper sacrifices to the gods. And as a consequence, it's doomed. Which is a weird thing to say about a wall. Like, Homer spends actually a lot of time reminding us that the wall is kind of screwed. Uh, this was at the beginning of book 12, by the way, not book 11. Um, but right around line 5, it says, When they built that wall and drove the trench around it to protect their ships and all their plunder, they neglected to offer formal sacrifice to the immortal gods. Built against the will of the immortals, the wall could not endure for long. Now, admittedly, in both places where the wall is discussed, back in Book 7 and here in Book 12, Homer emphasizes it's just a matter of time until the wall gets washed away, but it's a long time. Like, he emphasizes that the wall is actually really impressive, as much as, you know, it is erected without proper sacrifices and therefore doomed. Um, Homer emphasizes that the Greeks put a lot of work into it, and there are a lot of Greeks to help out, so it is actually huge, and really sturdy, as walls go. Um, it is hastily erected, like it was, you know, made out of whatever they had to hand on the battlefield, which apparently is littered with rocks and stuff, so it's not that big a deal. Um, but suffice it to say that the wall is both really strong, a really present obstacle for Hector as he's trying to get to the ships, and also it is doomed. We know that it's bound to fail. Um, because they didn't perform the proper sacrifices, and Poseidon and Apollo will be washing it away in the course of time. Um, so weird wall personification to sort of like kick off our description here. So the wall is actually a really important like plot device and strategic element of everything that's going on here. Homer has Homer emphasized the Greeks are, you know, stuck here with their backs to the ocean. Um, Hector is going to, like, wreck them, and has been wrecking them consistently for quite a while, but Hector can't just burn the ships because there's this wall in the way. Um, and we're going to be taking out that wall and trying to get over that wall in the, the coming books. But here in Book 10, it's nighttime, um, and not much is happening. Like, the trip, the trouble, though, is that Agamemnon can't sleep and everybody is friggin' worried out of their minds, and for good reason. Remember, their backs are to the wall, Hector is encamped right on their doorstep, the ships are in serious danger, and if they try and go back and escape at this point, Hector's probably going to shoot at them, so that's not a safe choice either. Um, so anyway, Agamemnon is disturbed by all this, and he wakes up, and it turns out that Menelaus is also unable to sleep, and he wakes up, and they both go find Nestor, and Menelaus is checking on the sentries to see if they're doing their jobs, and they actually are, go figure, like all of them are very alert, doing their job correctly. Um, Agamemnon talks to Nestor, and he's like, alright, what do we do about this situation? I'm thinking about sending spies into the Trojan camp. And we get a really weird moment from Nestor here. Uh, this is on page 184 in book 10, roughly around line 133. Um, Nestor, the old Geranian horseman, says, this is how he will earn the army's respect and their compliance when he issues commands. Now, we've seen Agamemnon screw up a lot over the course of the last nine books. Like, we've kind of been emphasizing there's this real question about how fit is Agamemnon to lead. On the one hand, his, you know, leadership style seems kind of crappy and baffling. Achilles and some of the other troops have very directly insulted him, like Diomedes insults him uh, a little earlier on. So nobody really seems to respect him. Nestor, by this line, seems to suggest that this is a good move and will help to earn Agamemnon actual respect here. Like, he's learning, he's growing, he's turning into a fairly decent general. 
Um, now, when uh, Agamemnon summons the officers, we also get, like, Odysseus showing up, and he's, you know, in, in favor of this plan as well, which is a good sign, because he is the strategist, everyone knows that he's, like, really smart and stuff. Um, long story short, we get to the point where most of the A-list heroes and B-list heroes are standing around, and Agamemnon's like, alright, I need volunteers to go spy on the Trojan camp. Like, break in, maybe capture someone, interrogate them, figure out what's going on, make sure that uh, Hector isn't planning a night assault, um, which, honestly, they seem pretty well prepared for as these things go. Um, so anyway, Diomedes volunteers. Diomedes asks for a partner, and we get Odysseus. So... So begins the chapter where Diomedes and Odysseus basically bad boys their way through the Trojan camp. Um, this is a weird chapter. Like, again, as I said about, you know, some of the chapters before, um, it is totally omitted by Lombardo in his essential Iliad and the essential Homer. Um, like, it is just so secondary to what's going on in the plot. But I actually really like this chapter. Like, in the middle of this weird section, it breaks up you know, a lot of the real frustration that has been introduced in books 8 and 9, um, what it would otherwise be this long, uninterrupted slog of, like, Greeks and Trojans just beating the living crap out of each other, this has some drama and some excitement and is very different from a lot of the Iliad's narratives so far. Um, especially because it turns out that Odysseus and Diomedes aren't the only spies on this one. Like, this is actually a chapter full of spies, Remember that in addition to Hector, like, sitting around the ships with his army and thus preventing the Greeks from, you know, basically being able to do anything, Zeus, too, is also being vigilant here. He has laid down serious orders that no gods are to interfere with the Trojan War at this point, while he makes sure that the Trojans win in order to fulfill his uh, commitment to Thetis. Um, so... The fact that Athena actually sends them a positive omen, like the heron that goes and flies by them in the night, that's clearly a spy. Like, Athena is blessing their, their sort of activities here and empowering them at certain times during this chapter, despite the fact that Zeus is, you know basically issued this big moratorium on divine intervention, Athena has found a way to help. As we would expect from, you know, Odysseus and Diomedes the spies, they are joined by Athena the spy, in short. And, you know, Odysseus even has a moment when he hears the heron going by in the night. Um, Odysseus prays to Athena, Hear me, child of Zeus Aegis Holder. This is around line 290 uh, in Book 10. In all my troubles, you look over me wherever I go. Be my friend once more, Athena, as never before. Grant that we return to the ships in glory, having done great deeds to confound the Trojans. Now, this is fairly unique in the Iliad, um, but this is going to be something we see a lot in the Odyssey. Athena and Odysseus really are BFFs. Um, they are kindred spirits. Odysseus is the master strategist. He is a strong warrior, but not nearly as strong as some of the others who we've seen acting in this uh, war so far. But he is the master tactician, the master man of cunning. He is a master of disguise and deception. You know, even when he's talking to Achilles, like, all of his stratagems and diplomatic talents are employed. Like, he even straight up lies to Dolon here, when Dolon is, like, wandering out of the Trojan camp, and 
um, they catch him and, and start interrogating him. Like, Odysseus is clever, sneaky, and this is something that Athena appreciates about him. Athena, too, is a strategist, a tactician. Um, she uses her wits instead of just raw strength. Um, so Athena very much is Odysseus's patron, and Odysseus is very much beloved to Athena. Um, so when Odysseus has this kind of moment with Athena here, I can't help but think of all the various times in the Odyssey that Athena does in fact help him. You know, we haven't seen a whole lot of the Odysseus-Athena uh, repertoire or rapport here, um, but we get this great little glimpse in this little little prayer uh, at this point. Now, that's not the only spy either, though. Dolon, as we mentioned, is also Hector's spy. Like, Hector is not unaware of the fact that they are in a fairly delicate situation on the Trojan side as well, and that this would be a logical time for the Greeks to mount an assault. So he sends Dolan as a spy to, like, check them out, see what's up, make sure that they're not, you know, planning an attack or anything. And as it happens, our two spies or two spy teams bump into each other. Um, Odysseus and Diomedes capture Dolan. Odysseus interrogates Dolan. Um, again, by lying to him. No one's going to kill you. Just tell me this and give me a straight answer. Um, and Dolan gives them really good intel. Like, as far as, you know, this random meeting of spies are concerned, Dolan actually knows a lot about the Trojan encampment and even sort of recommends to them that if you're going to bust into the Trojan encampment and, like, mess up some crap... Um, maybe go visit the Thracians because they've got really awesome horses and those horses are like some of the best horses that Dolan has ever seen. And Odysseus is like, cool, that sounds like a great plan. And they kill Dolan because, you know, no witnesses. And then they literally just bust into the Thracians' camp and mess up the place. Um, like, they literally break in and Diomedes starts murdering all the Thracians who are guarding the horses, and Odysseus, like, drags off the bodies so they aren't caught. Like, the whole thing reads to me like an old, you know, stealth game, like Thief the Dark Project or something. Like, you're just carefully maneuvering the bodies and making sure that nobody accidentally stumbles upon them. Like, the Thracians are apparently all just asleep at this point, so good on them for not posting sentries or anything. Um... But, like, Diomedes and Odysseus just systematically murder their way through the Thracian camp until they get to the Thracian king and his horses. They murder the Thracian king in his sleep, and then they run off with the horses. At which point, somebody actually notices, like, Apollo wakes up one of Hector's troops, and all of a sudden, like, all hell breaks loose, and they're chasing after Odysseus and Diomedes. But Odysseus and Diomedes already have a pretty impressive head start, so they get away scot-free. Um, now... This is, a, like I said, an interesting chapter. It's fun to read because, you know, it's just so different from a lot of what the Iliad has been doing so far. Um, but at the same time, I want to really draw attention to what this chapter is telling us about the Greeks. Because if you think about it, this is kind of messed up. Like, for a culture that is so concerned with honor and glory in combat that will literally, like, have everyone drop everything and sit down to watch, like, Hector and Ajax spar in this totally fair arrangement, if honor is about overcoming your enemy in, you know, straightforward combat, why is this okay? Like, why is it okay to sneak into the enemy encampment start murdering people left and right while they are asleep, steal their stuff, and go back to camp, like, 
you know, your great heroes or something. Because this is how they are treated. Diomedes and Odysseus are celebrated for this little night excursion. Um, I'm not sure I have an answer here. Like, obviously, you know, we only have a limited amount of insight into how the Greeks sort of viewed warfare. Um, but at the same time, you know, the Greeks seem to have a very pragmatic view of how war is supposed to be conducted. Um, like, the Greeks were famously pretty unromantic about honor and glory and actual, like, you know, fighting according to some supposed code of laws or rules. Um, like, we'll see this more in the, in the Odyssey as well, because this is absolutely, like, Odysseus's forte. He will frequently take these kind of underhanded tactics and sort of, like, whatever works in order to get the job done a lot of the time. Um, like, when, in fact, Odysseus is plotting against the suitors, he is indeed working against overwhelming odds, which makes it, like, a little harder to blame him for it. But he absolutely screws them over multiple times before it gets to the point where he starts killing people. Um, he wants all of the advantages that he can get, and he is not ashamed to totally take advantage of their gullibility or their sort of lack of vigilance. Um, here, too... We have two of the strongest Greek heroes breaking into the Thracian camp and straight up murdering numerous soldiers so they can steal all these cool horses. And it's just weird. Uh, the Greeks do not have a sense of honorable combat in that way, which, again, is very much at odds with so much of the rest of this text. Um, you know, so many of the heroes are very careful to perform honorably in certain circumstances. It's it's just interesting. Um, very much something that you could totally write a paper on. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, but anyway, let's get off of Book 10, fascinating though it may be, and move on to Book 11. And Book 11 is where shit starts hitting the fan around here. Um, book 11 starts so ominously. Um, like, take a look at that first stanza in, in Book 11, like lines 1 to 12. Dawn left her splendid Tithonius in bed and rose to bring light to immortals and men, as Zeus launched Eris, the goddess Strife, down to the Greek ships, a talisman of war clutched in her hands. She took her stand near the great black hull of Odysseus's ship, which lay in the middle, so a shout could reach Ajax's huts on the one end of the camp and Achilles's on the other. These two had beached their ships on the flanks, confident in their manhood. Standing there, she emitted a yell that rose in volume and pitch until it seemed to each Greek that fighting to the death was far preferable to sailing home in their hollow ships. Now, we haven't talked a whole lot about the other sort of secondary war gods and goddesses hanging around the field here. We have, in fact, seen Eris before. She was, in fact, charging with Ares way back in Book 5 when Diomedes was like, well, I'm not touching that shit. Um, Eris is bad news. She is, like, the worst part of the whole war business. And if I'm not mistaken, it's Eris, namely Strife, who is also the one in our Apollodorus myth who is responsible for throwing the golden apple out and causing the goddesses to fight over their beauty in the first place. Like, she is personally responsible for the Trojan War in many ways. But notice that Strife... This is the bad part of war. This is war for war's sake. Like, way back when Zeus was telling Ares, you actually like fighting in war. Ares does like fighting in war. He gluts himself on the blood. He, you know, loves killing. He's a terrible person. Ares is worse. 
Like, Eris is not interested in the blood and killing so much as she is interested in watching people betray each other, seeing people destroyed. Like, Ares is into violence for violence's sake. Eris is into pain and suffering for pain and suffering's sake, which is a little different. Um, and it's significant that the chapter starts this way because this is a chapter about the Greeks getting wrecked. Like, way back in chapter 8, I emphasized, you know, this is a chapter where, like, it's full of non-starts. Every time that somebody tries to get something going, tries to fight back Hector, every time the plot starts to be moving in a certain direction, it's stalled out. Here, the plot does move. And in fact, the plot keeps moving against the Greeks. Now, admittedly, not a whole lot of ground is gained. Like, by contrast, Book 8, with all of its false starts, actually involves a very serious tactical uh, reversal between the Greeks and the Trojans, as we talked about. Here, not a whole lot of ground shifts. Uh, by the end of Chapter 11, Hector is still basically at the walls surrounding the ships. Uh, nothing has changed there. Like, the difference is that all of the heroes have been incapacitated at this point. Like, all of them. Over the course of this book, we're going to see basically every A-lister who's been, you know, doing anything beneficial for the Greek side of this war get taken out of the fight, one way or the other. Um, and that actually starts with Agamemnon. Um, like, Agamemnon apparently has a good day at the beginning of this chapter. Like, right around line 90 and following, we get a long list of Agamemnon just beating the crap out of Trojans, just killing minor heroes left and right. Um, and we even get, like, while Hector is sort of watching this transpire and wondering should he go in, should he stay back, um, we get a message from Zeus directly to Hector um, by way of Iris telling him to wait until Agamemnon has been wounded and decides to withdraw to advance. So, like, the start of the big black day for the Greeks is with Greek advancement, Agamemnon pushing forward personally. And I want to emphasize that as well. This is the first time we've seen Agamemnon actually, like, fighting for real. Like, we saw that he got some kills back in some of the earlier earlier books. This isn't totally new. But the fact that he's just wrecking the Trojans, that he's just plowing through them, like Diomedes in Book 5 or Hector in Book 8, you know, this is new. This is Agamemnon in his final form, like, actually looking like a Greek hero, actually being a successful general. Um, as much as we have sort of been, you know, ragging on him for so much of this book, as much as so many of the troops have very much, like, rejected his orders or questioned his authority, now we see him in his full power, and he is not to be trifled with. Like, he is pretty badass here. Um, finally, though, he is, in fact, taken out. This rando on the Trojan side by the name of Koan shoots him with an arrow. Agamemnon, like, pulls it out, no problem, and continues killing people instead of, if I'm not mistaken, killing Koan. Um, but after a little more of this, apparently the arm kind of, like, starts to get bad. Um, so around line 285, we're told, as long as blood flowed warm from the wound, but when the wound dried and the blood caked, the pain set in, needling and sharp, and he ultimately orders a chariot to take him out of the fight. So Agamemnon's out. 
Agamemnon has been shot with an arrow, and he is no longer able to participate in the fighting, despite his good day. That good day was apparently just to raise the Greek spirits so they can come crashing down. Um, so we get the next wave. Like, Hector advances now that Agamemnon is out of the fight, according to his instructions, and Odysseus and Diomedes show up, and they're, you know, still in Bash Brothers mode, so they charge forward, and they're causing trouble. Um, but... Pretty quickly, Diomedes gets taken out of the fight by, of all people, Paris. Paris actually has a lot to do in this chapter. As much as we have been, you know, ragging on Agamemnon, and now all of a sudden Agamemnon is awesome, we've also been spending a lot of time ragging on Paris, and Paris turns out to be a badass in this chapter. Um, his first move is to shoot Diomedes. Like, Paris is apparently a consummate archer, and we are not going to see him do a whole lot of, like, hand-to-hand -hand fighting, no spear throwing, no, you know, sword fighting, nothing like that. But he is very much sort of ducking in and out of the combat, shooting arrows at important heroes and taking them out of the fight. Now, we are once again faced with that same question we were faced with a moment ago, is this honorable? And like I said, the Greeks are very pragmatic about war. Um, but, on the one... Even though, like, it's okay for Odysseus and Diomedes to break into the enemy encampment in the middle of the night, murder some people, and steal all their stuff, I suspect that we are meant to question the honor of Paris because he is an archer. Like, there are lots of archers that are really important in this text. And, in fact, Homer has spent a lot of time showing us really skilled archers shooting people with arrows as a way of taking them out of the fight without taking them out of the book. Like, if you get hit with a spear, you're dead. And Homer just... It, it, it's very rare that anyone survives a spear blow unless Homer very specifically says, like, it was just a nick, or, you know, it barely grazed him, or it just stunned them. Um, like, the one person who has actually survived a fairly major wound of that order is Sarpedon, weirdly enough. Like, Sarpedon got taken out pretty early on, uh, back in, I want to say, like, book four or five, I was even confused when I first read it, because I know how Sarpedon dies in this book. Like, it's kind of a big deal. We'll talk about it when we get there. Um, but Sarpedon, like, gets hit with a spear or something, and, it, like, the text specifically says, like, they take him out of the fight, and they bring him back, and he's like, I'm gonna die! And he, Homer even has this line about, you know, he took his last breath, and then apparently he was fine. Like, he's back in the fight a little while later. I don't think he's the one that dies twice. I could be mistaken about that. But, like, I think Lombardo made it fairly clear, presumably Homer does as well, that he did, in fact, survive the blow. But there's just this sort of weird moment where I was like, crap, Sarpedon's going to die here? That's not appropriate. But, again, he'll, he'll die later. Don't you worry. We will kill Sarpedon. But Sarpedon actually has some really cool stuff to do in the meantime. Um, like, as weird as it is, Sarpedon does seem to be on the A-list tier of Trojan heroes. Like, Hector, for sure, is by far the best. And we've seen Paris and Aeneas definitely holding their own. But Sarpedon has shown up way too frequently to be an accident at this point. Um, so we will come back to Sarpedon and his exciting adventures. Um, but anyway, like, this does not happen often. Usually the only way that Homer can sort of get a character out of the fight without totally killing them is you shoot them with an arrow. Like some rando like Pandarus who is hanging around with, you know, uh, Aeneas, like shoots Diomedes in the shoulder and Diomedes is like, mm, don't care. Or he in turn is like taken out of the fight. Um, here it happens four times. Like 
numerous heroes are taken out of the fight with strategic arrow placement. And Paris, in fact, takes two of them out. Um, so, on the one hand, we should stress, wow, Paris turns out to be able to fight, and we even get, like, a speech at the end of Book 11 where Hector and Paris are sort of confronting each other, like, they've managed to bump into each other over the course of the fighting again. Um, and, like, Hector gets his usual, ugh, like, Paris, you're the worst sort of face, and Paris is like, dude, I'm actually holding my own. Like, Paris gets a little grumpy about Hector's treatment of him there. Um... He, he very much stresses, you know, like, yes, I have held back from the fight before, but if you haven't noticed, I've been definitely keeping up um, at this point in the fighting. And it's true. Like, we have to give Paris credit when credit is due. Um, but at the same time, I suspect that the, the heroes would very much, or that the Greeks would very much see Paris's fighting with a bow as being, like, less awesome and heroic than, say, Hector going in with his spears and swords. Um, but yeah, it's actually in book 13 now that I'm looking through. Um, right around line 810, we have, like, this is, at this point, you know, Hector is busted through the front lines of the wall, and now he's figured out that his army is totally scattered and disorganized. He's, like, regrouping them all, um, and on his way, running across the battlefield, like, screaming at the top of his lungs for everybody to regroup, um, he runs across Paris and immediately starts insulting him. Paris, you desperate, preening pretty boy, where is Diphobus? And where are Hellenus and Adamus and Adamus' fa father, Aesius? And where is Othryonius? Tory is doomed. The whole towering city is good as gone. And Paris, who could have passed for a god, I see you're in a testy mood, Hector. I may have held back from battle before, but not now. My mother didn't raise a total weakling. Ever since you started this attack on the ships, we've been right here, engaging the Greeks. As for our comrades you're asking about, they are dead. Except for Diphobus and Hellenus, who have gone off with spear wounds in their arms, saved by Zeus from death. So, on the one hand, Paris is definitely holding his own. On the other hand, Paris is definitely doing archery, and that's kind of wimpy, and we're not terribly impressed with him. Um, give Paris credit where credit is due. Note that it is not nearly as awesome as some of the, the folks who have been hanging around in this book so far. Um, anyway, Paris took out Diomedes. Like, he shoots Diomedes in the foot, which I don't... I have to think that this is at least a little bit a reference to Paris shooting Achilles and killing him later on, like, after the Iliad concludes. Um, like you probably read in Apollodorus. I'm hoping you remember this from Apollodorus. Um, the, Achilles ultimately does get killed shortly after killing Hector at the end of the Iliad by Paris, who shoots him in the foot, which is where we get that whole myth about, like, Achilles was immortal and, like, his mother dipped him into the ichor that caused him to be invulnerable, but she held him by the heels, so he was vulnerable in the foot, and so on and so forth. Um, at any rate, Diomedes is hit, but he's hit in the foot. It's not a big deal. He's really grumpy about it. He's like, damn it, Paris, you're the worst. I hate you so much. And he retreats, which leaves Odysseus. And again, Odysseus can hold his own here. Like, at one point, they very much stress he is surrounded by Trojans on all sides, and he manages to, you know, fight and, and keep up with everything that's going on. Um, but ultimately, again, Socus manages to hit Odysseus with a spear, and then, like, Menelaus and, and Ajax show up, and they, they help him, and he limps away, and, you know, he's in bad shape, too. He's protected by Athena. It's not, it's not fatal. Don't worry, Odysseus will be fine. But, yeah, Odysseus is now out, too. Um, so, yeah, I guess I was wrong about the whole, like, four arrow shots. 
yeah, Odysseus does in fact get hit with a spear, but he is well protected by Athena, and so it goes. Now, sort of hanging around the periphery of all this is we're still waiting for Hector and Ajax to square off again. And it's tempting. Like, Hector, or Homer teases another battle with Hector and Ajax multiple times over the course of this section. After Odysseus retreats, this is the first one. And uh, Ajax even manages to, like, hit Hector and sort of, like, stun him at one point. Um, but it, it's very much inconclusive. Like, here in Book 11, it's very much stressed that Ajax is, like, single-handedly holding back the tide of Greek of Trojan soldiers, like, retreating step by step, trying to hold the line. Um, but at the same time as sort of, like, Ajax is hard-pressed by all the same folks who were, like, fighting Odysseus, on another line of battle, we have Paris takes another shot at um, Eurypylus and the random medic... Uh, the random medic, I forget his name, um, what is it, Machaon? Um, yeah, Machaon manages to get shot and taken out of the fight as well. Um, so we've got a lot of people who are taken out. Um, Agamemnon gets taken out early on, Diomedes gets taken out by Paris, Odysseus gets taken out with a spear thrust by Socus, um, Eurypylus gets taken out with an arrow from Paris. Machaon, the medic, gets taken out with a three-pronged arrow. Not sure what the deal is there. Um, and then we get sort of like a side discussion. Like, apparently all of these casualties being carted away from the Greek lines is or from the uh, sort of front line of the battlefield behind the Greek lines. Um, while all this is happening, like, we get in a weird moment where Achilles and Patroclus are kind of watching as this happens. Um, and Nestor, who has retreated along with uh, Machaon, the, the medic, uh, like, Achilles asks him, Hey, what's up here? Um, it looks like everything is going very badly for you. And you kind of get the gloating sense here. Like, this is around line 645. Son of Menoetius, my heart's companion, if I have it right, the Greeks will soon be groveling before me. They've reached their limit. But I want you to go now and ask Nestor, whom he is bringing wounded from battle. From behind, it looked just like Machaon, son of Asclepius, but I didn't see his face. Now, Nestor responds with a little bit of question here. Like, why do you care? Um, this is line 699. And why does Achilles feel any sorrow for wounded Greeks? He has no idea of the grief that is spread through the army. Our best men have been hit and are lying wounded in camp. Diomedes is out, and Odysseus, a good man with a spear. Even Agamemnon has taken a hit. Eurypylus, too, an arrow in his thigh. Machaon here I have just brought back with an arrow wound. But Achilles, for all his valor, has no feeling for us. Like, notice, this is where Achilles' rage seems that it's most inappropriate. You know, it was one thing for him to get mad at Agamemnon originally. That seemed totally legitimate. Even Phoenix argued that, like, if Agamemnon was still mad, he would totally be sympathetic and would totally take Achilles aside. Then we get all of his friends show up and beg him to come back to the war. Here is this really generous financial offer to incentivize you. And Achilles shoots it down, and we're like, well, that's unwise, but still understandable. It's the product of stubbornness. But here, he seems to be actively gloating, and Nestor very much calls him out on this. 
Achilles is basically standing there so everyone will know where he is when somebody shows up to, like, beg and plead and, you know, grovel before him. Like, Achilles is like, hey, is, is anyone around here uh, interested in doing any groveling? Anyone? Anyone at all? Like, I noticed that a bunch of people got shot today. Like, Odysseus, I see you, man. I, I saw that you got that wound. That must be really rough for you. I, I imagine you're in a lot of pain right now. Um, if you wanted to come over and grovel a bit, feel free. Like, what is his problem, in short? Like, Nestor calls him out here. Even in future chapters, we're going to get, like, Poseidon himself calls out Achilles for being an asshole. Notably, though, this is the moment when Patroclus starts to change his tune. And we even get sort of a hint from Homer that this is kind of a big moment. Um, this was the beginning of evil for Minoetius' strong son Patroclus, back at round line 642. Um, Patroclus goes to see what's up. He's the one who Achilles dispatches to Nestor to figure out what's going on. And Nestor first basically calls out Achilles. Then he gets off on one of his old man rants about how awesome he used to be once upon a time, which goes on for like two pages and is kind of especially rough, even as Nestor's digressions go. Um, but importantly, he concludes with a direct address to Patroclus, specifically right around line 830. He said, Old Peleus told Achilles to be preeminent always, but to you, Menoetius, gave this command. My son, Achilles is higher born than you, but you are older, though he is much stronger. Advise him, speak to him wisely, direct him, and he will be better off for obeying. Thus spoke the old man, but you have forgotten. Still, you should speak to Achilles. It is not too late, and he just might listen. Who knows but that with the help of some god you might rouse his spirit. You are his friend, and it is good for friends to persuade each other. So, as much as Nestor has called out Achilles for being an asshole, and appropriately, Nestor also calls out Patroclus for not being a good advisor to Achilles. You can do better than this. You were charged by your father, Menoetius, to keep an eye on Achilles and make sure that his stubborn spirit didn't get the best of him. But Nestor also gives him a more tangible suggestion. If some oracle or a secret his mother has learned from Zeus is holding him back, let him send you out, he says. Let you lead a troop of Myrmidons and light the way for our army. If you wear his armor and the Trojans think you are he, they will back off and give the Greeks some breathing space, what little there is in war. Our arrested men will turn them with a shout and push them back from our ships to Troy. And Homer notes... This speech put great notions in Patroclus's head, and he went sprinting down the line of ships to Achilles. At which point he runs into Eurypylus and decides to play medic for a little while, because, you know, Eurypylus is also taken out. This is really significant, and we need to remember this part, because this is exactly how Patroclus is going down in a few chapters. He is going to get so upset at the state of the war that he is going to ask Achilles to wear his armor into battle on his behalf. Achilles will give him permission. Patroclus will charge forward, pushing the Trojans back from the ships, being super awesome, and then ultimately get killed. Nestor's suggestion is a good one from the strategic perspective of the Greeks. Like, this is what breaks the sort of stranglehold that Hector has over the Greek encampment. But it's a really bad one for Patroclus. 
the cost will be Patroclus's life. And it's ominous here. Like, we're meant to think about this. We're meant to know this at this part. Any one of the, the Greeks who were hearing this epic poem recited would have known this is the moment that Patroclus gets too big for his britches, gets these big ideas inappropriately. This is where Nestor fills Patroclus's head and will ultimately get him killed. And I don't know exactly how to interpret this for, for Nestor's sake. Like, is he being a busybody here? Like, it's really hard to kind of sympathize with Nestor at this particular moment, what with the fact that, like, he's coming back from the field, admittedly helping the medic, but he gives us this really long story that basically just glorifies himself as a warrior before, like, getting grumpy with Patroclus, who clearly is doing his best. Um, it's hard to say. But for the Greeks, they would have definitely read this as ominous, portentous, potentially problematic, because this is how Patroclus will ultimately die. Uh, anyway, moving forward to Iliad 12. At this point, Hector has stalled the initial Greek advance. He has wounded successfully every one of the major Greek heroes except Ajax, and he is at the wall. And this is, again, where Iliad 12 emphasizes that the wall is doomed. Remember, everyone, this wall was erected without the proper building codes. The gods have not approved the construction of this wall. And as a consequence, this wall is going down. Um, and it does. Like, over the course of Book 12, basically the most exciting thing that happens is the wall gets taken out. Um, not necessarily, like, taken out, out. It's going to still stand and will continue to stand until, again, Poseidon and Apollo ultimately washed away many years down the road. Um, but we start with Sarpedon managing to, like, pull down a decent chunk of the wall before he gets fought off, and then Hector will, in fact, be the first person through the wall, leading a contingent of Trojans after him. Um, now, the Greeks do manage to fight them off, for the most part, here. Um, we do get, like, a really strong defense of the wall. Numerous Greeks get a lot of awesome kills by standing on top of the wall and, like, dropping rocks on people. Um, and importantly, the Trojans even note that, like, this is way more trouble than they were expecting from the Greeks at this point. Like, Aseus, who is one of the guys who is, like, charging up against the wall, and the Greeks are chucking rocks back down on him, and he's, like, watching his countrymen get, like, knocked off the wall left and right. Um, he even, like, questions Zeus at one point, around line 175. Father Zeus, or should I call you the arch-deceiver? I never thought the Greeks had a chance against us. They're like a swarm of wasps or bees, holed up in a hive they have built near a trail through cliffs and defending their young against hunters. These men, even though they are only two, will not yield the gate until they kill or are killed. And yet, in yet another extremely ominous, totally failed prayer attempt, we get the line, these words had no effect upon the mind of Zeus, who had decided to give all the glory to Hector. So notice, Zeus has been Team Troy for quite a while now. He's the one who definitely managed the, you know, big advance of the Trojan forces in Book 8. He's the one who counsels Hector to stay back in Book 11 so he can, you know, charge afterwards. He has been the one who's been protecting Hector, even when he's gotten, like, thumped or stunned or whatever. 
At this point, he is like Aceus is like, dude, I thought we were going to totally wreck the Greeks, but there's only like two guys on top of the gates, and they are totally defending this wall from everybody. And Zeus is apparently totally indifferent because Hector is going to be the one to go through the gates. Like even Sarpedon, who manages to pull down the wall, apparently with his bare hands? Question mark. Um, he's not going to be the one to bust through. Hector is. Um, now we also get right after this this fairly weird portent moment. Um, like, you've probably noticed a few times over the course of the book so far, every now and again, like, the entire war will stop, and we'll all just sort of debate about, like, what does the bird sign mean? Um, like, back when Diomedes and Odysseus were charging into the camp and the heron was flying next to them, they were like, wow, this is a really good portent. Um, here we have a mixed portent. So while this whole fighting is going on, apparently we get this omen. This is around line 202 um, in book 12. While the Lapiths stripped their victims' bronze, the troops with Hector and Polydamus, for all their numbers and valor and their eagerness to break through the wall and fight by the ships, hesitated on the brink of the trench, paralyzed by an omen, an eagle overhead that skirted their front lines from right to left, clutching in its talons a huge scarlet snake, still alive and with plenty of fight left. Curling around, the snake struck at the eagle just below its neck, and in a spasm of pain, the great bird dropped it in the Trojan ranks and flew off shrieking on a blast of wind. The soldiers shuddered at the glistening coils lying in their midst, a portent from heaven. Polydamus turned to Hector and said, Hector, you always lay into me in assembly, even when I give sound advice, since it will not do for a man of the people to cross you in council or in battle. Even so, I will speak now as seems best to me. We should not fight the Danaeans for their ships. It will turn out for us just as with this bird that came to the Trojans as they were eager to cross. It skirted their front lines from right to left, clutching in its talons a huge scarlet snake, but then let it fall before reaching its nest and never brought it home to give to its young. It will be the same with us. Even if our forces break through the Greek wall and its gates and the enemy fall back, we will find ourselves beating a disorderly retreat from the ships and leaving behind us many Trojans killed by the Achaeans in defense of their ships. This is how a soothsayer would respond, one who knows omens well and has the people's trust. So we get a bad omen. Again, the Greeks, and you'll see the Romans as well, take bird omens very seriously. Um, this is how the gods communicate to you how things are going to go. So for an eagle to show up with a snake in its talons and then the snake to strike the eagle and, be, and fall away is a pretty good indication that the Trojans, i.e. the eagle, are charging forward toward this goal, namely the Greek ships, and that it is going to escape them ultimately. So, again, Hellenus pretending to be a soothsayer or trying to be a soothsayer, um... Or rather, uh, Polydamus here, not Hellenus. Hellenus was the other omen earlier. Um, tries to convince Hector that this is a bad call. But Hector, remember, Hector's got conflicting portents at this point. Hector has been encouraged by Zeus this entire time, between the lightning bolts against the Greeks in Book 8 and back in Book 11 when he gets like a direct message from Iris. Hector's not interested in complicated, contradictory omens here. So he says, I don't like the way you're talking just now. You know how to speak better than this. But if you really mean what you say, the gods themselves must have addled your wits, telling me to ignore what thundering Zeus has assented to and held out to me. Birds? You want me to obey, obey birds, Polydamus? I don't care which way birds fly, right to the sunrise or left into the dusk. All we have to do is obey great Zeus, lord of mortals and immortals alike. One omen is best, to fight for your country. 
So Hector is like, don't care. Bird omens are dumb. I have much better inside information from Zeus, and we are going to kick butt over here. So Hector ignores this and proceeds forward. Remember this, there may be consequences for Hector in this line. Um, so again, they do bust through, but as we'll see, they don't get to burn any ships. Not yet, anyway. They manage to get through the gate, like, uh, Sarpedon pulls down part of the wall, and then, like, Hector apparently picks up this giant rock at the end of Book 12 and just, like, smashes the gate with it, because, you know, who needs battering rams when you've got, like, superhero strength chucking rocks at things? Um, and then at this point, like, all hell breaks loose, and Book 13 is basically fighting on the walls, behind the walls, in front of the walls, like, just chaos until finally Hector has to wrangle everything. Um, but before we get to Book 13, I want to dwell on this really weird and surprisingly poignant speech that shows up right here in the middle of Book 12 for no apparent reason and gives us one of the most clear descriptions of Greek values that we're going to get in this book at all. Um, namely, once Sarpedon is trying to, like, tear down the wall with his bare hands, apparently, um, we get this weird speech where Sarpedon turns to Glaucus and is trying to, like, rile him up. So Sarpedon is dead set on this wall, wants to tear it down. He turns to Glaucus and he says, Glaucus, this is line 320, Glaucus, you know how you and I have the best of everything in Lycia. Seats, cuts of meat, full cups, everybody looking at us as if we were gods, not to mention our estates on the Xanthus, fine orchards and riverside wheat fields. Well, now we have to take our stand at the front, where all the best men fight and face the heat of battle, so that many an armored Lycian will say, so they're not inglorious after all, our Lycian lords who eat fat sheep and drink the sweetest wine. No, they're strong and fight with our best. Ah, my friend, if you and I could only get out of this war alive and then be immortal and ageless all of our days, I would never again fight among the foremost or send you into battle where men win glory. But as it is, death is everywhere, in more shapes than we can count. And since no mortal is immune or can escape, let's go forward, either to give glory to another man or get glory from him. There's a lot we need to take apart here. Like, this is fascinating from a sort of Greek anthropological or, like, student of classics perspective. Sarpanon is basically outlining the entire Greek social structure, the entire Greek economic world here. Um, like, this is basically as good a key to understanding who the Greeks are and how they think about themselves as anything else we're likely to read this semester. So let's start with the first few lines here. Glaucus, you know how you and I have the best of everything in Lycia. Seats, cuts of meat, full cups, everybody looking at us as if we were gods. Not to mention our estates in the Xanthus, fine orchards, and riverside wheat fields. Sarpedon starts this speech by acknowledging, Hey, Glaucus, we're rich. Like, notice all the things that he's emphasizing about their wealth here. They have the best of everything in Lycia. The best seats, the best meat, the best drink. Everybody respects them. Everybody looks up to them. They've got orchards and wheat fields. Like, they are well-situated. They are rich and powerful. But notice that rather than sort of taking this for granted or assuming some sign of, like, you know, like we would see in the medieval world, a sort of divinely issued order about, like, being a monarch or a lord or whatever, Sarpedon continues, well, now we have to take our stand at the front, where all the best men fight and face the heat of battle. 
so that many an armored Lycian will say, so they're not inglorious after all, our Lycian lords who eat fat sheep and drink the sweet, sweetest wine. No, they're strong and fight with our best. Notice that Sarpedon doesn't consider himself to deserve any of this, except insofar as he fights on the front lines. This is why he gets the big fancy house and the big fancy orchard and the good food and the good drink and the good chairs. Like, Sarpedon has this stuff, is in fact a member of the noble class, is allowed to be rich and powerful and respected, specifically because he fights at the front lines, he is stronger than virtually anybody else that he fights with, and he is respected as a consequence. In short, Glaucus and Sarpedon earn the right to these wealth, to this wealth, to these riches. This is how they earn those things. Honor in the Greek world is contingent upon your fighting prowess, your courage, your willingness to engage in battle, your willingness to stand at the front lines and do this stuff. Which is important for us to think about and understand in terms of everything else that's been going on here. Remember, Hector has repeatedly said, like especially back in Book 6 when he's talking to Andromache, that he would be ashamed if he didn't fight at the front lines, if he, you know, were, were in fact, like, insulted by his troops for being a coward here. This is why. Hector is standing atop of a giant pile of riches. He has a beautiful wife and a wonderful son, and he is respected, and he is, you know, revered by the troops specifically because he is powerful, because he doesn't flinch from fighting at the front lines. Uh, Sarpedon says something similar here. We get this wealth, we get this treatment, we live these lives because we do our jobs, and our jobs are to fight and to potentially die and to be in the greatest danger and to show the greatest physical prowess. Which puts Achilles' situation into an even more sort of revealing light. Achilles has rejected this. Remember, Achilles is not in this fight because he's not winning enough glory. He's not winning enough honor. But notice that Sarpedon is emphasizing that that's not how honor works. Yes, Achilles is right to point out that, you know, honor is something earned, and he has been fighting really hard, and he has deserved as much as he's gotten because of this arrangement. But at the same time, you know, Agamemnon has taken it away, so now it's, you know, besmirched in some way. But that's not the people, that's not the relationship that honor is supposed to take. Like, Sarpedon isn't dishonored by Glaucus, Sarpedon would be dishonored by his people. For Sarpedon, honor isn't something you deserve, it's something that you win. And it doesn't come from fellow generals or fellow soldiers or fellow kings, it comes from your people. For Achilles and Peleus and Patroclus to sit in their big fancy country estate, you know, protecting it from invaders, yes, but also growing the richest food and, you know, having the richest wine, that's a result of their fighting. That is the appropriate pay, pay the appropriate wage for risking their life. As much as Achilles emphasizes it's not worth it, I would rather have my life and be undistinguished, he should know that that also means not being wealthy, not being rich. He is, by abdicate, abdicating his responsibility, abdicating his honor and his wealth as well. It's all connected for the Greeks. But notice, too, that Sarpedon isn't unaware of the cost here. 
Ah, my friend, if you and I could only get out of this war alive and then be immortal and ageless all of our days, I would never again fight among the foremost or send you into battle where men win glory. Sarpedon recognizes the danger, but he's here anyway because it's his job. It's his responsibility. As a noble, as a fighter, as a son of Zeus, as a strong warrior, he has to be in the front lines. He has to risk his life. He has to run the risk of potentially dying in combat because that's what justifies his role in society. That's what makes rich people rich and good people good and strong people strong and the noble noble. But he too is aware of this. As it is, death is everywhere, he says, in more shapes than we can count. And since no mortal is immune or can escape, let's go forward, either to give glory to another man or get glory from him. Notice that his ultimate conclusion here is fairly equivocal. He starts by saying, hey, we're rich, that's awesome. We are rich because we, are, we have earned this from protecting our people, from fighting in the front lines, from being stronger than they are. We recognize we would much rather not die, but given that we do have to die, this is as good a way as any, in short. Like, Sarpedon successfully answers all of Achilles' concerns here, even better than Phoenix does back in Book 9, if, you know, that's to be believed. Like, he very concisely articulates the entire reason for his being there. He's rich, which means that he's responsible for fighting in this war. And while he would much rather not die, since he has to, this is as good a way to go as any. There's no point in being afraid, or in retreating from battle, or in shirking one's responsibilities. Achilles, in short, is doubly wrong here. He is wrong because he doesn't understand how honor works. Honor is supposed to be given freely from your people, not, you know, distributed swag or anything like that. Um, and he is also wrong because life isn't worth cowering. As much as Achilles wants to go back to his life and, you know, while out his days, like, peacefully and peaceably, Sarpanon wants that too, but that's not how things go in this world. Like, even Odysseus, as we know, is not going to get his peaceful, happy ending. Life is unpredictable, and so is death. So if you're going to die, make it a good death. Do it for a good reason. Make sure that you are protecting the people who you care about, and make sure that you are honoring yourself by doing what is required of you. Now, once we get to Book 13... Again, all hell breaks loose, and now that the Trojans are through the wall, it's very chaotic fighting. But as part of the chaos, we actually get a big move in the Greeks' favor here. Namely, they finally get some divine assistance and intervention. Apparently, like, Zeus turns his back for a moment, and Poseidon takes this opportunity to sneak into the Greek lines and help out. Um, first, like, he delivers this whole speech that sort of, like, encourages the troops and, and makes them excited and stuff, um, so they are ready to fight again. He empowers the Ajaxes, uh, and, like, even little Ajax points out, hey, that was, that was a god there, like, big Ajax. We are definitely, you know, in for it now. Um, what's more, we also get a pretty impressive speech from Poseidon throwing heavy-duty shade on a on Achilles a couple of times. 
Um, the first one in book 13 is right around line, well, the speech is like from line 95 to 125, um, but the relevant portion is right around line 110. Um, but now they're out fighting for our hollow ships, he says, because, thanks to our leader's cowardice and dissension in the ranks, we would rather be killed beside our seagoing vessels than defend them. But even if Agamemnon is completely to blame for all this, because he dishonored Achilles, that's no reason for us to go slack in war. Let's do what good men do and make amends. It's no longer right for you to slough off, not you, our army's best. I shouldn't bother with some sad sack who is sitting out the war, but with you, I couldn't be angrier. So Agamemnon, Poseidon, rather, encourages Ajax and the other fighters to really get into it. Like, you guys have been in despair because the leadership of this army is completely divided and, you know, Achilles is sitting out the war and this is totally demoralizing, but that's no excuse. If you are going to fight, you are going to fight the best that you can, no matter what the circumstances are. So stand on this wall, defend the crap out of it. You're Ajax. You can handle this. You practically took out Hector earlier. This shouldn't be a huge deal for you. We also get this rando named Idomeneus getting a really good day. Like, for about, like, seven or eight pages, Idomeneus just starts wrecking the, the Trojan lines with the help of, of Poseidon and others. Um, which... I don't know, like, most of those are pretty D-list Trojan heroes who he kills, and Idomeneus has got to be, like, a C-list Greek hero as they go. Um, his main claim to fame is that he's the leader of the Cretan contingent, which is substantial. Like, Crete's a big part of, of the, you know, Greek world, so calling him a C-lister is probably unfair. He's probably a B-minus-lister. Um, he's also the grandson of King Minos, who is the famous king of Crete, who has a whole lot to do in a lot of the myths. Like, this is the Minos of the Minotaur, who, like, captured Theseus and had him run through the labyrinth. Um, this is the Minos who hangs out with Daedalus and Icarus, the, the great architect. Um, this is the Minos who may or may not be, like, associated with the Minoans, which we'll talk about when we get into the whole Greek archaeology business. Like, Idomeneus having Minos as a grandfather is kind of a big deal. Minos is as big as Greek kings get, with the possible exception of Agamemnon here ruling all of Mycenae. Anyway, there's, like, a big fight with Idomeneus, and whatever. Like, this is just a straight-up battle chapter. A lot of fighting, not a whole lot of back and forth, not a whole lot of plot movement. There are a couple of little things that I sort of want to pick out of this chapter, though. Um, first off, right after Idomeneus' rampage, we get a weird speech from Achilles, or uh, not Achilles, from Aeneas, Right around the top of line 250, or page 253, around line 473 or so. Um, he, like, Diphobus is asking himself whether or not he should take on Idomeneus himself. Um, and he decides he'd better go get Aeneas, and found him in the rear, the last man there, angry as always with Priam, who utterly failed to honor his worth. Which is weird. Like, I have not seen any, you know, Priam Aeneas beef in this text so far. There's no indication except this one line that that's the case. Um, like, again, Priam, for the most part, has seemed to be a pretty upstanding general and leader throughout this book. He's decent to Helen back in book three. He seems to respect Paris's decision back in book seven or eight. Um... 
Priam has been pretty universally regarded to be pretty wise and a capable leader for Troy, even if he's not a great general. Um, but here we see some beef there. Um, apparently Priam has been overlooking the powers of Aeneas, which are not inconsiderable. Like, Aeneas has been one of the A-list Trojan heroes this entire time, I suspect. Um, at any rate, Aeneas is apparently sulking about this, but, you know, again, we don't get a whole lot of context or insight here. Diphobus just sort of mentions it on his way to finding Aeneas, and as soon as he does, he's like, hey, Aeneas, let's go. And Aeneas is like, okay, cool, so they fight. Um, Aeneas and Idomeneus, like, throw down with each other, and fairly inconclusively, honestly. Um, so that's just a weird note. Like, I don't know what the beef is with Aeneas and, and Priam, but it does give us evidence that maybe Priam isn't as awesome as we've thought so far. And that bit where he seems to excuse Paris or just sort of go along with Paris's refusal to give back Helen may be ind indicative of greater failures on his part. Um, at any rate, we also get a weird speech from Menelaus uh, shortly after this, right around line 650-ish. Um, he gets real aggressive with the Trojans. Um, and this is not the first time we've seen Menelaus fly off the handle, perhaps unreasonably here. Um, so he has this speech, All you Trojans will be leaving our ships like this, you arrogant bastards. You can't get enough of fighting, can you? Can't get enough of abusing people as you've abused me. No room in your heart for the anger of Zeus, the lord of thunder, god of host and guest, whose wrath will destroy your towering city. You came and took my bride, made off with all my stuff, and after you were her guest... And now you're all hot to burn our ships. Cut us off from the sea and kill our men, but you won't for all your eagerness to fight. Father Zeus, they say you are the wisest of gods and men, yet all this is from you. Somehow you honor these violent men, these Trojans, with their reckless strength and insatiable appetite for the horrors of war. When it comes to getting enough, everyone else would rather have all they want of sleep or love, of sweet song or fine dancing, but the Trojans are gluttons for war and cannot get enough. Now, this is probably the real solidifying evidence that Menelaus' grudge against the Trojans is just personal and irrational. Like, nowhere in this text does anyone accuse the Trojans with this much anger and spite. And nowhere have we heard anyone laying this accusation that the Trojans like war, that they are gluttons for war, um, except for Menelaus. Like, most of the time, even when the Greeks are treating with the Trojans, they tend to be really civil about it. Like, there's no... Uh, accusations, there's no, you know, invectives, like Agamemnon and Hector agree that there's going to be a, a truce and a duel, and everyone's chill with this, no big deal. But Menelaus clearly has a grudge, and it's a grudge that is not going away. And But notice the form that it takes. He uses the same language that Agamemnon used about Achilles, and that Zeus used about Ares, namely that the Trojans like war, they are gluttons for it. Which is even more weird in this context. Like, yes, the Trojans are in fact fighting, they are in fact at war with the Greeks, they are in fact trying to destroy their ships, but remember, the Greeks are here on their land. The Greeks are, at least to the Trojans, the aggressors. Yes, Menelaus is right because he is personally aware of the fact that the Trojans came in and stole his wife, that they are guilty of starting this war in that sense, but it isn't quite so clear-cut, and Homer very typically emphasizes both sides of this. But Menelaus doesn't see that. Menelaus is blinded by his rage. On the one hand, he's, he still has some faith that Zeus is going to take him out for this, that Zeus is going to get his retribution, because Zeus is the protector of hospitality, and Menelaus 
his hospitality was violated by the Trojans, therefore Menelaus expects Zeus to take his vengeance, his retribution on the Trojans. But, as Menelaus notices here, it doesn't seem to be coming very quickly. Um, that's kind of not great. Like, Menelaus has put his faith in Zeus for correcting this injustice. Zeus doesn't seem to be quick to act here. Uh, lastly, in Book 13, I want to draw on one other sort of significant passage here. Um, this is on around line 770. Uh, so at this point, like, Hector is charged through the wall, the Trojans are fighting all over the place, they're very disorganized, and Polydamus actually calls him out on this. Uh, right around line 667. Hector, you are a difficult man to persuade, because Zeus has made you preeminent in war, you want to excel in counsel, too. But you can't have everything. Zeus makes one man a warrior, another a dancer, another a singer, and in another's heart he puts wisdom, by which many profit and which saves many, as the god himself knows best. This I find especially interesting, because this connects to other major Greek ideas, especially in the Athenian tradition, like... Plato is going to write his whole republic founded on this principle, namely the division of labor, that the gods give some gifts to some people and other gifts to others. Um, Hector is, in short, as Polydamus reminds him, not good at everything. And in fact, if we think about it, we should probably reflect on exactly what Hector has accomplished over the course of the last several chapters. Like, this has been all Hector for the last, like, five to six books of the Iliad. Like, Hector is the one who has been leading the charge, he has been leading the successful Trojans, he has been fighting back the Greeks at every stage, he is the one who was first through the wall. Like, Hector accomplishes a great deal of things, but we should emphasize, is Hector really that strong? Like, Hector has not successfully squared off with any single Greek soldier since the sort of abortive duel way back in Book 7. Um... Hector squared off with Diomedes at one point, and Diomedes kind of stunned him and took him out of the fight just before he was shot with an arrow by Paris. Hector has been intentionally avoiding Big Ajax during this entire conflict around the wall. The couple of times that they do in fact square off, Hector typically gets the worst of it and is knocked out of the fight again in Book 14. Um... As much as Hector is the strongest soldier on the, the Trojan line, he does get a lot of kills of, like, randos with random names and minor, minor heroes, Hector probably wouldn't be able to keep up. Certainly not with Achilles, probably not with Ajax, probably not with Diomedes, like, maybe Odysseus. It's not great. Like... And on the one hand, Hector has been calling the shots this whole time, but notice most of the shots that Hector has called haven't gone well. He's the one who tells Dolon to go spying, but doesn't give him a companion the way that Odysseus and, and Diomedes end up backing each other up. And as a result, Dolon is captured and killed, before, right after giving a bunch of really valuable intel to the Greeks, who then like ravage through the Thracian line. Hector does, in fact, charge through the wall, but at this point his troops are really disorganized, and the Greeks are pushing back now that they've got Poseidon on their side, and Idomeneus is, you know, having a good day. The Ajaxes are holding their own. You know, Hector's kind of only been successful because of the gods' help here. And as much as Polydamus stresses, you're good at war, but maybe not the greatest strategist, really... Hector has been backed up by the gods this whole time. 
he's not that strong a warrior. He's been knocked out of the fight a couple of times, though he does always pick himself back up and keep coming back. You should absolutely admire Hector for his resolve, his courage, and the reasons that he goes into the fight. But if you compare, like, pure strength, he's going to be fairly low on the main characters list here in this book. He doesn't seem as threatening as might be expected from the primary villain who is called Manslaying Hector whenever we get the chance. Um, Zeus is the one who's really been spurring the Trojan advance. And that sort of line that we got earlier, that Hector won't even show his face off the walls if Achilles is in the fight, is pretty indicative of exactly how limited Hector's powers really are here. So on the one hand, we should recognize that Polydamus, you know, is in fact sort of drawing attention to Hector's failings in a way that maybe we haven't been looking at so much. But we should also recognize that Polydamus's speech has greater, you know, application here. Some people are warriors, some people are not. Some people are strategists, some people are not. Some people are dancers or cooks or, you know, singers, and some people aren't. The Greeks very much see it this way. Some people have certain talents, certain abilities given to them by the gods, which are theirs to exploit. Others, not so much. And nobody is good at everything. Heracles was super-duper strong, but he wasn't necessarily the brightest bulb in the box. Nor was he terribly restrained about his power. He would frequently fly off the handle and kill his family or something. Um, the Greeks recognize you're not good at everything. You're good at one or two things, maybe at best. And Homer even draws attention, especially in this text, to the fact that like you don't just get strength and beauty together either. Like Paris is really handsome and not a great fighter, which is something that the Greeks will fairly quickly forget, honestly, um, as we'll talk about probably later. Anyway, just worth mentioning that the Greeks do have a pretty robust idea of the division of ability and the division of power and how the gods relate to that, even here in, in Homer's Iliad. Um, but the last thing I want to talk about is kind of the main thing that's going on in Book 14. Namely, Zeus gets taken out of the fight. And I love this section. Like, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole Iliad, just, you know, sort of watching this whole thing come together. Again, Zeus has been sort of hanging out, watching this whole thing transpire. He put the whole moratorium on the entire Greek forces. You know, no gods are going to be participating on the Greek side whatsoever. Like, the only god who he has explicitly permitted to be in the fight is Eris, the goddess of strife, on the day that all of the Greeks get taken out of the fight, which is by the way, the same day at this point, books 11 to 14 are all one day. Rough. Um, anyway, at this point, Poseidon is snuck in and he is fighting on the Greek side, apparently still without Zeus noticing, and he calls to Hera for reinforcements. And Hera tarts herself up, for lack of a better way of expressing that. She decides she is going to take Zeus out of the fight with some wiles of her the womanly persuasion. She is going to get all sexy, and she is going to seduce Zeus, and she's going to have him fall asleep with the help of sleep, the god. And finally, they'll be able to push back the Trojans a little bit, because things are looking real bad now that Hector has busted through the wall and is regrouping and seems to be making an organized push against the Greek ships. So Hera does this. She 
talks to Aphrodite and concocts this whole story where she manages to convince Aphrodite to give her the magic sexy sash, which has sex in it and desire and sweet talk and stuff. I don't know. All I know is that that sounds like a pretty badass sash as these things go. She puts on the sash. She gets herself all dressed up. She does her hair just so. She goes to Zeus and she's like, hey, baby, I was on my way to the Ethiopians to get them to, like, chill out and stuff. And Zeus totally falls for it. Like, in one of the most wonderful Zeus speeches I have ever read. This is book 14, right around line 317. And Zeus, clouds scudding about him. You can go there later just as well. Let's get in bed now and make love. Like, oh yeah, Zeus, master player. Total god of foreplay here. Just sees his wife all sexied up, and he's immediately like, let's get in bed now and make love. Like, word of the wise, if you are a dude and you are reading this, this is not the way to go about your sexual contract conquests. And in fact, no matter what your sexual persuasion is, do not follow Zeus's example here. What's more, just watch him blunder in even farther here. No goddess or woman has ever made me feel so overwhelmed with lust, he goes on, which is at least a little bit, like, complimentary. Like, he's saying, hey, baby, you're really sexy right now. I've never been this attracted to a woman. Like, okay, that's pretty cool. Not even when I fell for Ixion's wife, who bore Perithous, wise as a god, or Dene, with lovely slim ankles, who bore Perseus, a paragon of men, or the daughter of far-famed Phoenix, who bore Minos and godlike Radamanthus, or Semele, or Alcmanian Thebes, who bore Heracles, a stout-hearted son, and Semele bore Dionysus, a joy to humans, or Demeter, the fair-haired queen, or glorious Leto, or even you! I've never loved anyone as I love you now, never been in the grip of desire so sweet." Okay, so if tip one is don't lead with let's get in bed, tip two is do not follow it up with talking about your exes extensively. Like, Zeus immediately goes from, hey baby, let's get in bed now and make love, to you are way hotter than all of these women that I've slept with. Here, let me list them for you. We got, like, Dane, who was really hot, and, like, uh, Semele, who was really hot, and Alcmene, who was really hot. Like, remember Alcmene? She bore Heracles. Like, you had this whole beef against her for all the... Like, keep in mind, this is Hera he's talking to. Hera, who is famous for being jealous. Hera, who is famous for ruining the lives of all of the women that Zeus sleeps with. And Zeus is, like, literally presumably guilelessly listing all of his conquests in front of her when he's trying to get into her pants. Like, if it wasn't for the fact that Hera is clearly plotting against him here, that Hera is clearly trying to manipulate him, this would be the biggest turn-off speech in the history of turn-off speeches. And I love that it's Zeus. Like, I love Homer and how he characterizes Zeus in this epic poem. It's just wonderful. Because on the one hand, Zeus is the most powerful of the gods. He is the one who can silence people with thunderbolts. He can single-handedly get his way in a contest of any amount of power. But he is a moron. He is as subtle as a sledgehammer wielded by an ox. Like, he cannot understand how poorly he is dealing with this situation when subtlety and finesse is appropriate. And he totally does not understand Hera at all. Like, totally misses the boat here. Absolutely just falls into this trap. 
And of course, Hera sleeps with him and puts him to sleep. And then immediately, like, Athena and Hera are teaming up with the Greeks, and they're supporting the Greek line, and the Greeks manage to push back the Trojans. Like, Zeus may be the strongest god out there, but he is an absolute patsy when it comes to matters of the heart, emotional intelligence, and just women manipulating him. Um, Hera totally gets this one over on him. It's no contest. Zeus immediately falls over and shows his butt his stomach to her, like, no contest. Hera totally wrecks him here. And I love it. Like, I just love it. I recognize that, yeah, this is probably fairly misogynistic, but I cannot help but admire how Homer appreciates the whole man and woman situation here, recognizes how poorly equipped men are to deal with women's intelligence, and shows us Hera just taking advantage of it. Zeus is the prototypical dude here. And Homer gets that. Homer gets that this is a mess for women, but that women can exploit it under the right circumstances. It's not great. I'm not pretending that it is great. Homer's not pretending that it is great. But given that it's not great, he has so much fun with it. And he shows us something true about this Greek world. Yeah, here are all these really strong, powerful men, these capable fighters and capable, you know, strategists and so on and so forth. We, But even the Lord of the Gods himself is totally vulnerable when some random lady shows up all sexy-like. It's just... Men suck just as much as the women here. As much as women do suck for Homer. So, I suspect that Homer's misogyny is a bit overstated, even in the Iliad. Uh, but we'll talk about that more, especially when we get to the Odyssey and see Homer really doing some work to talk about women and understand their perspectives and be sympathetic to their plight in the Greek world. But that's another discussion for another day. Thank you for bearing with my just rapid-fire examination of this really weird section of the Iliad. Uh, we will soon get back into the real plot of this thing with books 15 and 16 as we see Patroclus' exploits and misadventures, unfortunately. Um, so we will have a lot more to talk about in the near future. I look forward to talking about it with you soon.